You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we're grateful for all of the ways that your word leads us. Just speaking to our friends from Missouri and how God has been leading them. We're just so uh, thankful, Lord, and just want to rejoice with you and with all of heaven at uh, what happens when your spirit gets a hold of someone. And I just thank you, Lord, for the truths that you have given to us as a church. Um, they're not ours. They come straight from the Word. But, Lord, you're leading a people, and we're grateful to be part of it. So please bless us and give us insight and greater understanding and help us to apply what we're learning both to our, our ministries as Christians and also to our personal lives. And we thank you for hearing our prayer. Abide with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. All right. Um, just want to tie up kind of where we were just a moment ago, um, talking about the sanctuary uh, from the standpoint of an overview of the sanctuary. And I was just kind of walking through some of the elements of the sanctuary. A few that we did not mention before the break. Blood is a big part of the sanctuary service. Um, you know, I know some people, especially when they first, you know, first exposure to the Bible, and they learn that God asked His people to kill animals and to, you know, take the blood and into the sanctuary and all those things, and they're just, oh, that sounds just awful. Well, I guess the, the moral of that is it's supposed to be awful. Right? Um, the truth is, it's probably more awful to us in many ways than it was to them because of their way of living. Um, but still, it, it, it was to impress the mind with the weight of, of sin. And so, blood was a big part of it. Now, what does blood represent uh, in, in the Bible? Okay, now, the cleansing blood of Christ, that's certainly the case um, in... In some respects, um, I'd like to, and it's, it's, it's true in all respects, but there are different elements of the blood of Christ that I want to just talk about for just a minute. Um, but we'll wait until we get to the, the yearly service, when we start talking about the services. But the blood just represents life. Um, and you can find that in the scripture. Leviticus 17.11 is one reference I wrote down that just tells us that the life is in the blood. That's why, by the way, you're not... We're not to eat anything with blood, right? Because there's life in the blood. And if it's contaminated, then it, it will contaminate you. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it can be a real problem. So the idea of blood is that it represents life. So when the animal was slain and the blood was captured, that blood represents a spilled life. And we'll talk about different ways that that happened. But there's a couple of other elements that you're very aware of. What about the high priest himself? High priest was an element of the sanctuary. What do we know about his symbolic meaning? He was the only one who could go in the most holy place, and he certainly represented Christ as our high priest. One of my favorite verses is in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews, by the way, um, is 
a very necessary book for Seventh-day Adventists and for our understanding of the sanctuary. Um, number one, you know that as Seventh-day Adventists, we don't just believe that the sanctuary on earth was symbolic of um, simply intangible things. But we believe that the sanctuary on earth was symbolic of a literal sanctuary in heaven. And one of the key components to our understanding of that um, comes from Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 8 specifically, you know, the first seven chapters of Hebrews, uh, the author who we believe and understand to be the Apostle Paul, lays out the case for why, you know, we need a, a special high priest. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now this is the main point of the things we've been saying. I love when a Bible writer says that. It's like, okay, good. Summarize it for me, will you? What are these last seven chapters saying? Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest. You know, I mean, he just went through, well, the high priest needs to be divine. The high priest needs to also be able to sympathize with our weaknesses and, and our humanity. The high priest needs to have all these attributes. And we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens and is a minister of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So you have this right in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 8 where it gives evidence that there is, there are, Two tabernacles. There is the earthly, and then there is the true, of which the earthly is a copy and shadow, it says in Hebrews chapter 8. So we recognize from Hebrews chapter 8 that the sanctuary in heaven is a literal sanctuary. Now, flash forward, I'm going to get to this in just a minute, but I want you to think about this for a minute. You know, you had the sanctuary where, you know, facing east here, you would come in, you have the altar of burnt offering, you have the laver, you have the tabernacle itself with the holy place, and then the most holy place, right? And we'll talk in just a moment about the the services of the sanctuary. But ultimately, in this process of dealing with sin, which is what the sanctuary did, you had the high priest taking you not just through dealing with sin here on earth, but dealing with the issues of the universe. And this is the fascinating thing about the sanctuary. It not only tells us about the plan of salvation from the human perspective, but it tells us about the plan of salvation in this, from the standpoint of what we understand as the great controversy. The issues in heaven that began in heaven, the problems that began in heaven, and how they will be resolved. Did you know that the cleansing of the sanctuary is at the heart of how God resolves the issue of the universe? It's not just how He resolves the issue of your sin and mine. So it's incredible. The sanctuary is is far-reaching in its meaning. Now, uh, and I'll talk about one special aspect of that in just a moment. But, uh, of course, we know that the lampstand in the holy place could be symbolic of, you know, Jesus as the light of the world or even us as the light of the world. The idea of witnessing, oftentimes, we talk about 
in there. We talk about the table of showbread, which is in the uh, holy place as symbolic of the importance of the Word of God. And then right in front of the most holy place, there is another altar. It's called the altar of incense. And that incense had to be burned and kept burning because the smoke of the incense, we're told in Revelation, represents what? The prayers of the saints. And so, and it also represents, connected with that, the intercessions or prayers, if you will, of Christ. The merits of Christ mingling, mingling with our prayers so that they're acceptable before God. There's all these beautiful things that we see in the sanctuary that represent Christ as our advocate and as, you know, Christ the bread of life, Christ the light of life, and uh, as our as our intercessor. But in addition to these, we have just the simple elements of the sanctuary. If you look at the altar of burnt offering, what happened at the altar of burnt offering? That was the first thing you came to when you came in, right? You came in and you came into this, you know, fenced, if you will, uh, area, and it was called the outer court. And you came in and you came to this first thing. And what was it again? Altar of burnt offering. And that was where what happened? The offerings were, were presented and where the, the animals were slain, blood was captured, etc. Okay, when you come in there, what is the sinner, what does the sinner do when he comes into the altar of burnt offering? What is, what is his role? Confession over the animal, okay? Now, if the sinner is confessing over the animal, what is happening in a, in a metaphoric sense? His sins are being transferred to the animal. Now the animal is guilty, and so the sinner takes of the spotless animal's innocence and transfers his sin to the animal so that now the animal has to die. So when the blood is captured, by the way, it represents the blood represents what again? Life. What kind of life does it represent? A sinful life. That's why it had to die. So when that blood is transferred... Okay, because often they would, there was a couple of different ways that sin was transferred into the sanctuary. One of them was uh, if the priest would eat of the sacrifice and then, and then go in. But another was he would take the blood and sometimes go in and put on the horns of the altar of incense um, this blood, right? And it represented the sin that had been confessed being transferred into the sanctuary. This is critical for Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the sanctuary. The reason it's critical is because we believe in the cleansing of the sanctuary. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that when it refers to the cleansing of the sanctuary, it's primarily referring to which sanctuary? The heavenly sanctuary, which I'll get to in just a moment. And if we believe that the heavenly sanctuary needs cleansed, what do our evangelical friends say to us? Besides, not necessarily it doesn't exist. Yeah, heresy, okay. Why do they say that's heresy? But remember, we're talking about cleansing the sanctuary in heaven. So the question the evangelicals ask us is, how could anything in heaven need cleansed? That is ridiculous. But remember, we believe that the sin, okay, the blood, is transferred into the sanctuary 
And you might, through this process of confession, okay, remember the confession, and then the sin is transferred into the sanctuary? What's happening, okay, this is all symbolic imagery, what's happening is, our sins are recorded in heaven. Okay, but they, before this whole great controversy is tied up, they need to be blotted out. Now they've been forgiven because the sinner transferred it and walked away. Right? The sinner walks away, innocent. He's been forgiven. But the record of his sin goes into the sanctuary and pollutes, as it were, the sanctuary. Okay? It pollutes the sanctuary. And something needs to happen to take care of that problem. And that something is what will later come as the cleansing of the sanctuary. Okay, and now I want you to think about the sanctuary in a slightly different way for a moment. The sanctuary is a picture of, of the plan of salvation, etc., yes. But if this record of sin is going to heaven, what's in heaven? Okay, what's in heaven? Who is in heaven? Okay, Christ, God. God is in heaven. God runs His government from heaven. We're talking about a heavenly sanctuary. Who's the one on the throne in the heavenly sanctuary? That's God. So when we're talking about this sin, no longer is it on me, okay? Because I walk away free. Now it's been transferred to the sanctuary. In a sense, where has it been transferred? To God. I want you to understand this. The idea is God now has to answer for the decision he made to forgive you for that sin. I mean, there is a sense in which there needs to be clarity around this. And do you know when it is that that clarity occurs? It's in an event we refer to as the judgment. Which, by the way, has a colloquial saying in Daniel 8.14 called the cleansing of the sanctuary. The cleansing of the sanctuary is equivalent to, and I'm going to show it to you in Scripture, the judgment. So the way that God cleanses His government so that the whole universe now is no longer confused about the holiness and blamelessness of God is through the judgment. And though we may be forgiven, the final record of sin is not wiped out until that judgment. I mean, this is one of the things that, I'll get you in just one second, this is one of the things that we wrestle with with our evangelical friends is they believe, as you stated, that, you know, uh, Jesus died and so he paid the debt, and that's the atonement, and it's over, right? There's nothing else that needs to happen. My question is always, if there's nothing else that needs to happen, then what's he waiting for? Why doesn't he come? Why is he letting all this go on if nothing else needs to happen? Jesus died, nothing else needs to happen. You remember when Elijah was, uh, you know, talking, teasing the, the prophets of Baal, who were cutting themselves around the altar of Baal, trying to get Baal to bring rain down and, and uh, or fire down on the altar. And uh, 
And Elijah starts saying, oh, well, maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's gone. Maybe your God has gone on a journey and he's just, he's just away. He's out of the office right now. Keep trying. Maybe you'll find him. It's a ridiculous thought about God, right? But we could almost accuse God of that if the death of Christ is all that's needed. Because what in the world is he doing? If that's it, why is he not coming back? But the sanctuary is so clear that the death of Christ is out here in the altar of burnt offering. And it shows us that there is more to the plan of salvation than just the death of Christ. That's what the sanctuary reveals, clearly. And so we have this wonderful understanding in simple terms of what happens. Now, you look at this most holy place. We, you know, we talked about this being a literal place. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a picture of the judgment. I don't know if you've ever read it. But in Daniel chapter 7, it describes this judgment. It says that there's one like the Ancient of Days. I believe it's verses 9 and 10. One like the Ancient of Days who comes in on fiery wheels and the Ancient of Days seated, or the court is seated and the judgment is set. And then in verses 13 and 14, one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. Now that's representing the high priest coming before the most holy place, coming before God. And when you look at it, the picture, there's an additional group of people there. Who are they? Thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Do you know who that is? That is angels. How do we know that that is the angels? Okay, I'm quoting, by the way, for those of you who are, you know, wanting to do this. I'm quoting from, from Daniel chapter 7. We just, I quoted 9 and 10 and 12 and 13. But now it's in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. It says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So Revelation 5.11 tells us that the 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands is talking about the angels. And in Daniel 7's judgment scene, it says that God, the Ancient of Days, is there. Jesus, one like the Son of Man, the high priest, comes before him. And all of these thousands of thousands of 10,000 times 10,000 of angels are around him. Okay? By the way, have you calculated... Thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, like on a calculator. I've done it. Does anybody know how much it is? It was a lot of angels. Like, you don't, need to, you don't need to be specific. It was a whole lot of angels. Now, I want you to think about it for a minute. Those angels are where? They're around the throne. And what is this judgment? Where is this judgment being held? Not just the sanctuary, but where in the sanctuary? In the most holy place. This is a description of the literal sanctuary where there's these gajillion angels surrounding the throne during this judgment. This is a gigantic literal place that we're talking about. You understand? This is not... We have this little model that we're, our minds can't grasp it. But we're talking about a huge place. Remember that in the sanctuary, over the uh, Ark of the Covenant... 
What were the two uh, pieces on the mercy seat? The cherubim. Okay, these wings of these golden cherubim on the, on the mercy seat. And they were looking over the mercy seat, right? Where inside was the law of God. Now, I think it's important that we remember that the law of God is the foundation of the judgment. How do we know that from the Bible? James chapter 2. James chapter 2. The law of God is the foundation of the judgment. James chapter 2 and verse, start in verse uh, 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty. What law are you talking about, Paul? Because Paul is here using uh, nomos, which is Greek for law, but it, it, he uses it for all kinds of law. All kinds of law. But in this context, we know what he's talking about because in verse 11 he says, For he who said what? You didn't turn there, did you? James 2.11 He who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do, now where, where, what law is he talking about then? These are quotes from the Ten Commandments. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So we, the judgment is based on a standard. That standard is the law of God. When you see those angels looking over the mercy seat where the law of God is there, the angels are interested in the judgment. The angels are interested in the judgment. They're watching. That's why in Daniel 7, they're all there. Thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 surrounding the Ancient of Days. For the, and then in comes our advocate, our defense attorney, right? Jesus, the high priest, one like the Son of Man, comes before the Ancient of Days, it says in Daniel 7. So this is all a picture of this end-time climax. For you and me, we're down here on earth. We're pressing on. But in heaven, the importance of this cannot be underestimated. This is the answer to the great controversy. God is about to clarify and vindicate His justice and His wisdom once and for all for the universe. So all through the year, each day, they had in the sanctuary what was called the daily, the daily service, where they would confess over animals, they would transfer the blood into the holy place. This was the record of sin being transferred into the sanctuary. But there came a time at the end of the year where there was a yearly service by which the sanctuary would be cleansed. David Tolman. Let's look at it in uh, Leviticus chapter 16. There were feasts that were held throughout the year, the three pilgrimages and then the other fall feasts, but um, these were just all part of, I mean, they, they had specific offerings and specific requirements and what have you, but they were, as a general rule, in addition to just the morning and evening sacrifices that were made on a regular basis every day. Yes, correct. So the, so the Day of Atonement 
only happen on a yearly basis? Yes. Um, and let me show you specifically what it says about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and verse uh, 30. All of Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement. But Leviticus 16 and verse 30 kind of gives you the real underlying um, point. It says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you. And then it says what? To cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, this is important because it equates the idea of making atonement with what? He'll make atonement for you to cleanse you. So the idea is to make atonement for is to cleanse. And notice verse 33. Then he shall do what? Make atonement for the holy sanctuary. So, what's he talking about doing to the holy sanctuary? Cleansing it, right? Because he just said in verse 30, to make atonement for, to, to make atonement for you, to cleanse you. Well, when he says he's also going to make atonement for the holy sanctuary, he is cleansing the sanctuary. The Day of Atonement is where we see in the Old Testament service the cleansing of the sanctuary. That's what making atonement for the sanctuary was. Now, it's interesting and important that cleansing the people was not synonymous with cleansing the sanctuary. I know a lot of people, they say the cleansing of the sanctuary is talking about cleansing us from our sins. That is not true. There is certainly a true element to it in the sense that the cleansing of the sanctuary involves the cleansing of God's people. But the sanctuary is a higher element than you and me. Remember, the sanctuary was polluted by that sin being transferred into that. That was actually polluting the government of God, the character of God, the wisdom of God. In order for the cleansing to really solve the issue of the great controversy, it needs to not only cleanse us, but it needs to clarify for the universe the perfection and love of God. So that there's no question in the universe after that point. So when we're talking about cleansing the sanctuary, in a sense, God is vindicating His own role and His character before the universe. Now, the fascinating thing is that, that simultaneous to that, the people are being cleansed. And I, for one, believe, and I don't know if I have time to walk you through this in Scripture, that one of the means by which God cleanses His name okay, is through the cleansing of his people. Um, you know, there's a little tucked away verse in Matthew that says that wisdom is justified by her children. And uh, in Ephesians, it also talks about how the manifold wisdom of God is made known by the church to principalities and powers in heavenly places. So the wisdom of God and his 
righteousness, his rightness in this whole great controversy is made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heaven. So somehow God uses the church to reveal to the universe his wisdom. And that happens, so so God cleanses his name ultimately in part by cleansing his people. And we have a role in this. I mean, I told you I wasn't going to go into it, but now I'm just so excited about it. So in Ezekiel, if you go into Ezekiel 36, for instance, it talks about how the people of God profaned God and they profaned his name by, by rebelling against him. Because the people of God looked and said, hey, you know, these are, these are people who say that they follow God, but look, they're, they've been kicked out of his land and they, you know, and you're, you're profaning my name. And then he says, so I'm going to sanctify my great name. I'm going to sanctify my great name when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And he begins to describe how he's going to put his spirit in them and how he's going to cleanse them, basically. Restore them, make them spiritual. And in doing that, he's going to sanctify his own name. So see, God is the one who cleanses the sanctuary. You and I are not. We are part of the great controversy that he is bringing to a final end. And the the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary is actually the culminating event for that great controversy. It's, It's what you and I preach about in the sense of a judgment, but its consequences are much more than what we often preach about. Because we often preach about the judgment in terms of merely its role in our salvation. But the judgment also has a role in the universe and the fact that God is going to have a safe universe for eternity after the judgment. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. Now, you have the holy place where day after day, blood is transferred in and the people are forgiven, right? They confess and then they're forgiven. And then at the end of the year, the high priest goes into the most holy place. This is what happened. This is on the Day of Atonement. They chose two goats, and they cast lots. And one was the Lord's goat, and the other was what called what? The scapegoat. The Lord's goat was slain. The scapegoat was not. The Lord's goat, we do not read any record in the text Okay, in Leviticus 16, about the Day of Atonement, we do not read any record of sin actually being confessed over the Lord's goat. And I believe that this is intentional. Because I believe when this is slain, this goat is slain, it represents... Remember I told you that, that day after day, they would confess over the goat and their sin was transferred, over the lamb, and their sin was transferred to the sacrificial animal. And so they, when they captured the blood, it represented life. But what kind of life? A sinful life. And then that blood was taken into the holy place and it represented transferring the sin into the sanctuary. And that's why the sanctuary needed cleansed. Well, on the Day of Atonement, no sin was confessed over the goat. 
So when that goat was slain, the blood represented life, but what kind of life? A sinless life. Because you need a sinless life in order to cleanse the sanctuary. So what happens is, then the high priest goes in, not just to the holy place, but into the most holy place. And he sprinkles that blood over the mercy seat seven times, right? When he comes out, he does something significant on that particular day. What does he do? Do you remember? Takes his hands and he puts them where? Over the scapegoat. And then the scapegoat is taken by a fit man into the wilderness where he is left to die. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we see this as a beautiful, perfect picture of the fact that the scapegoat, keep in mind, you have all this sin that was transferred in the sanctuary. In the judgment, when, when we are, you know, the sin is blotted out, who is going to receive the blame for the sins of believers? Jesus died for our sins. He paid the debt for our sins. But Satan is going to pay for his deception and his part in this great controversy. And so the priest comes out. He cleanses. You know, just imagine with a washcloth. That's not what he did. But he cleanses that sanctuary, comes out and places all the blame for all of what happened in here. God is no longer viewed by the universe with any blame. Any. You understand? I mean, that's what has to happen in order for the great controversy to end. Is that there is to be crystal clarity in the minds of the entire universe that God was perfect and blameless. And you can find, I mean, if I had time, I'd go through some text. But bottom line is, he cleanses, comes out, puts all that blame on the scapegoat, he goes and he dies, and that symbolizes the devil being uh, left over the millennium and finally uh, experiencing his death at the end of that time. Because remember, he's stranded during the thousand-year millennium. That's, you know, our general understanding. But the bottom line is that this cleansing that happens is not just a humanity issue, but again, he's dealing with the issues of the universe. And he is, he is finishing all that has been plaguing the universe and the angels and everyone from that time until now. Let me just read a statement from Ellen White. At the cross, Ellen White says something happened in Desire of Ages. She says, The last link of sympathy, this is on page 761, the last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. Isn't that incredible? It says, okay, yes, that last link of sympathy was broken. But that doesn't mean that the angels fully understood. That needed more time. And ultimately will lead to this cleansing of the sanctuary that will bring them to this fuller understanding where the end can 
come about and we can live in safety and security for eternity. So, before the break, because when we're done, I'm going to walk you through the 2300 days. I want you to understand just the meaning, the meaning of it all. The sanctuary was a model. It was symbolic. And it wasn't just the elements of the sanctuary, but it was the service of the sanctuary, the things that they did that symbolized things. And I'm hitting on just the simplest of, of terms, but they're probably the most important. And that was what they called the daily, which was the daily ministration where they were given forgiveness every day. Now let me remind you, at the altar, there was confession. The holy place ministry, day after day, the daily, brought them forgiveness. And at the end of the year, they were brought cleansing. Do you remember 1 John 1.9? This is an easy way to remember. 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is like a, a walk through the sanctuary. There was, and, and let me just, you might ask, well, why, why wait? Why, why is there this period where there's just forgiveness and then now you have cleansing? Keep in mind that while all of this is describing things that were going on in heaven, there were historical events happening here on earth. Okay, You had the death of Christ, you had the resurrection, and then his ascension. At his ascension, Jesus was ministering as our high priest. But we went through this period of history where tradition began to overtake the Word of God. It happened very quickly. And the Bible was no longer held up as the ultimate truth, and there were many errors and heresies that were brought in through the Middle Ages. Okay? And the Bible describes this, we're going to read it in our next section in Daniel 8, as casting the truth down to the ground. But there would come a time where the truth would need to be restored. Um, we read that, that he would judge his peoples by his truth. I don't have the exact reference in my head right now, but I remember the idea being that you can't really have the judgment when people are, when error is being basically uh, the predominant view of truth. So when truth was cast to the ground, there was a major problem. And then there was this question that came in, in Daniel chapter 8, how long? How long will this go on? And the answer came, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The implication is that when the sanctuary is cleansed, the truth that was cast to the ground will also be restored. Did you know that the cleansing of the sanctuary involves God raising up a people, the remnant, to restore the truth? See, that needed to happen simultaneously. So that, so that in order for the cleansing to happen, the truth had to be recovered and then preached and made known. And that's the role of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We have a role in this final work of Christ as high priest in heaven. You understand? Because he's using his church to make the truth known and to exalt the truth so that 
people can make a decision based on truth so that he can make a righteous judgment. And that judgment is tied to the restoration of truth. So you couldn't really, you know, you had this ministry of forgiveness during this first period, the holy place ministry, because during that period, people were being taught error as truth. And so they were granted forgiveness. God winked in the times of our ignorance. But there would come a time where the truth would be restored. The truth about salvation, not through an earthly priest, but through our heavenly high priest. The truth about the law of God. The truth about the Sabbath. The truth about, about this whole great controversy and what we're describing here with the sanctuary and a, and a judgment and the second coming. All these things tied together. These truths that we hold dear as Seventh-day Adventists were all part of God's plan. And He needed to raise up a people to restore these truths in order for the cleansing of the sanctuary to actually happen. And so we're in that time right now. So I think we'll take a break. And in 10 minutes we'll finish... Well, we're not going to finish in 10 minutes. But in 10 minutes we'll start our session where we finish this concept of the sanctuary. And specifically, I want to walk through a little bit of the relevant um, prophecy that points us to 1844 and the end of time as uh, really the, the, the juncture when the cleansing of the sanctuary happens. So we'll talk about all that after the break. Uh, we'll have a brief prayer and then I'll let you go. Father in heaven, thank you for this class. And I pray that as we go into our final hour, that you would give us wisdom from heaven to gain what we need to the most from this incredible topic. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.